All right, we're back in Luke today. It's just been a little hiatus since November the 19th. So just take a moment and remember. Remember everything. You got it? Well, um, this story is just an amazing one to jump back into a series with, and I've been looking forward to preaching it since November the 19th. It's one of those beautiful stories that's found only in Luke. And so, you know, we talk about the sufficiency of Scripture. Wonderful doctrine, the sufficiency of Scripture. Doesn't mean that there's not other truth out there, but this is the truth Like, everything we need for our faith, our life, to be changed in Jesus' image, all of it, and nothing else is in Scripture. Like, the Holy Spirit inspired the biblical authors to include in Scripture precisely what God thought necessary for your faith and your life, you have it. And, and just don't these Lucan stories add so much? Aren't you glad that God felt those stories were necessary for your faith and your life, how they unveil so sweetly the heart of God for sinners and sufferers like you? And it just warms my heart as I approach a text like this one that God made sure that he prompted and inspired Luke to include this story for my faith and for your faith. So let's hear God's word, Luke 17, 11. On the way to Jerusalem, he was passing along between Samaria and Galilee And as he entered a village, he was met by 10 lepers who stood at a distance and lifted up their voices saying, Jesus, master, have mercy on us. And when he saw them, he said to them, go and show yourselves to the priests. And as they went, they were cleansed. Then one of them, when he saw that he was healed, turned back, praising God with a loud voice. And he fell on his face at Jesus' feet, giving him thanks. Now, he was a Samaritan. And then... Jesus answered, were not 10 cleansed? Where are the nine? Was no one found to return and give praise to God except this foreigner? And he said to him, rise and go your way. Your faith has made you well. And all men are like grass. And all their glory is like the flower of the field. And the grass withers and the flowers fade. But this good word, this gospel word endures forever. Thanks be to God. 
All right, so the story opens with uh, Jesus on his way to Jerusalem. And you remember, remember what's going on. Back in chapter nine, verse 51, Luke said these words. When the days drew near for him to be taken up, he set his face, as some translation says, he set his face like flint to go to Jerusalem. And so thus begins what's often called Jesus's journey to Jerusalem in Luke or Luke's travel narrative. It ends with Jesus's triumphal entry when he makes it into Jerusalem for his final week, the culmination of all his labors. We're in the Lenten season. You know, we're preparing for Easter. We're heading to Jerusalem. And so in his journey to Jerusalem, Jesus, is, Jesus focuses on training his disciples. He knows his time is short. He's training his disciples. So the question is, why package the instruction within this structure of a journey? Why do it that way in, in, in Luke's literary framework? Why do that? That's the artistry of Luke. So Luke, or the Holy Spirit, it's the sufficiency of Scripture, teaching us through Luke, wants you to know that your discipleship is a journey. You're on a journey. And it gets your attention that Jesus' journey to Jerusalem, it's not clear-cut and straightforward. In fact, Jesus goes back and forth. He meanders. He reverses course even. Back in chapter 10, verse 38, he was in the home of Mary and Martha in Bethany, two miles from Jerusalem. Now in chapter 17, verse 11, we see that he's up north again between Galilee and Samaria. He turned back. And so the point is not that he took a, a, a straight cut to Jerusalem when he began his journey. Rather, the point is theological. He's making a point to you. He's saying in all this, he was focused on what he was going to do in Jerusalem. And it, it influenced everything in a unique and intense way. He's dead set on his goal, his cross. Which means he's dead set on going to Jerusalem for you. Which also means that redeemed by the blood of Christ, brought into relationship with Jesus, your journey is the way of the cross. So Jesus is traveling southeast on a road along the border between Samaria and Galilee, and as he approaches the outskirts of some unnamed village, it wasn't a big place, it's a border area, it's just whatever village which is also such a blessing that he goes to unnamed places. As he approaches this little village, 10 lepers meet him, and the sense is, well, they meet him as best they can. They meet him from a distance, crying out to him, shouting after him in their raspy voices, as leprosy also affects the voice. They shout after him. They've obviously heard about Jesus. 
somehow the word made it to them and they gather there to meet him. So the law mandates that lepers live alone. They live quarantined from everyone else, even their loved ones. They live outside the villages in their own little places. But these 10 lepers, all lepers would live close enough to villages to receive charity. Okay, so they're outside, but close enough for charity. Well, these 10 lepers have heard Jesus is approaching, so they dare to get as close as they can, as close as the law would permit them to get, to, to plead and call out for mercy, Jesus, master, have mercy on us. It's this desperate cry for mercy. So Jesus looks up, he looks up and he sees their condition, their dreadful state, and he says to them, go show yourselves to the priests. And see, the law required a healed leper to first be examined by the priests before he or she could re-enter society, rejoin family, go back to the temple, be a productive member in the fabric of their little world. Before they'd ever get readmitted again, they had to go get checked out by the priest who served as a, a, a medical officer, a health inspector for the community. So Jesus says, go show yourself to the priest. They've called Jesus master. They take Jesus' instruction, they obey him, and hobble off to the priest as best they can get there, hoping that they'll be healed. And so you just imagine if you could have a little movie of what, was, of what happened. Very quickly, they're hobbling off to the priest you know, the leprous bacteria attacks the nervous system and it leads to numbness and the hands and the feet and so that you don't feel pain and you injure yourself, you don't know it, it gets infected, you lose limbs, other tissues shrink from the extremities and it also results in blindness and paralysis. It also attacks internal organs so they start shutting down. It's this dreadful, dreadful illness but these lepers, so they're both likely in a very bad physical condition heading to the priest. But as they obey the master's words, while they're still very sick, as they obey his words and make their way to the priest, very soon they notice that they're cleansed. Maybe limbs grow back. Maybe they regain their strength. Maybe their eyesight returns. Maybe... They start speaking more clearly and their skin becomes smooth. Their overall well-being and vigor is restored. One minute they're hobbling, weak and struggling, and the next they're running and jumping and laughing. Hope awakens the doors to their houses and their homes and their communities, opens wide again for them, above and beyond what they could ever ask or imagine. They're heading home. And they all race to the priest to get examined 
to be reunited with their wives and their children, to hug their wives and children again. But one of them, when he, when he realizes he's healed, he stops and he, he pushes pause on what his heart aches for because there's something he must do first, something that's arising from his heart that he, he must first do. And so turning in this spontaneous overflow of praise to God with a loud voice, he, 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 he runs back to Jesus. He falls at his feet on his face and he gives him thanks. And right here, Luke provides a little detail for us. He says, now, he was a Samaritan. And we recall that Samaritans hated Jews. Jews hated Samaritans. They despised each other. There's a long history of of why that was the case. It's a dreadful history. So we look at this Samaritan, the Samaritan of the group, the one that returns and falls on his face before Jesus to thank him. And on the one hand, it stresses the gravity of the disease. The trauma of these 10 was such that as bad as all those barriers to them being in a group with a Samaritan was, the ethnic, cultural, religious animosity they had, it all paled in comparison to the biggest trauma they were going through, so they became a unit of misery together. And on the other hand, it highlights the uniqueness and abundance of the Samaritan's gratitude. Like the one least likely of the group to give thanks to Jesus is the very one that does it. And as we realize that, then we have to say, well, it also lays bare how ungrateful the rest are. The implication of the story is that they are Jewish. And they have no barriers. And Jesus is first and foremost their Messiah. And yet they speed on their way. They've gotten what they most wanted. And now they're ready to enter their newfound life. As one commentator says, the nine were so absorbed in their new happiness that they could not spare a thought for its source. So Jesus looks at the Samaritan and he asks, he asks his disciples around him, we're not 10 cleansed, where are the other nine? Was no one found to return and give praise to God except this foreigner? And you get the idea that it, it, it like it grieves Jesus, like it hurts his feelings. It pains him that the others, the nine, even most likely the Jews, don't return to him to give praise to God. He's jealous for the praise of God. And throughout the Psalms, which the Jews knew so well, that's just what you do when you've received mercy. What shall I render to God for all his favors to me? Let me lift up the cup of salvation. Call on the name of the Lord. It's just what you do. But again, the disparity between the Samaritan and the nine is emphasized. Jesus says, of the 10, it's the foreigner alone that thanks me not even one of the nine covenant members do. 
It's the foreigner. And the word foreigner is only used once, right here in the whole New Testament. It's the word, you remember, there was this barrier in the temple. And there was a sign that says, foreigners keep out. Keep out of the inner courts, you're not permitted. It's the Roman guards, you couldn't go in there. That's the word used. It guarded access from any non-Jew into the inner court. So Jesus is saying, the one person of the group who was restricted from religious privilege demonstrates that gratitude that's the heart of religious privilege, whereas the nine who are blessed with full religious privilege don't. Everything's turned upside down than what it should be. You got a grateful man that really shouldn't be as grateful and nine that ought to be so grateful that don't express any gratitude. So Jesus rebukes those who should give thanks and he commends the one that does give thanks, even this unlikely one, and says, rise, go your way, your faith has made you well. And so we see the basic lesson of the story. We see the basic lesson is it's very important to God that we move from the gifts to the giver. We make that pathway rise, climb up the, the ray of heaven that's given us in the gifts we receive all the way up to the giver. And that's compounded for you and me in Christ because we're not foreigners, we're family members. But this story deepens tremendously and this thanks deepens tremendously because it, it tells us about the gospel itself. And so we learn some things about the gospel and therefore why we should overflow with gratitude. First is, we just behold Jesus' heart of mercy here. If you doubt Jesus has a merciful heart towards your messes and miseries, you, you see it here. He's abounding in compassion. Scripture distinguishes, like we said, mercy and grace. One Puritan author said, grace has to do with man's merits, but mercy has to do with man's misery. Like it matters to God your misery. Or we can say grace is God's love dealing with our sin and mercy is God's love dealing with our suffering. And we see here it's often our misery, our suffering, our felt needs that bring us to Jesus. We don't come to Jesus strong with a sense that we've got it all together. We come when we are mindful of our needs, it's oftentimes an illness or a sadness or an anxiety, hardship that brings us to Jesus. But you know, Jesus is more than willing to receive us that way. He's not looking to receive those who've got it all together. He's looking to receive and most willing to receive those who know their misery. Sinclair Ferguson says, nobody ever comes to Jesus in the gospels and asks for mercy and is turned away. And he's the same yesterday, today, and forever. 
When we see him here, we see him now at the throne of mercy. No one, Jesus always responds to cries for mercy. He has a heart that overflows with mercy towards our our suffering. I mean, he's on the way to Jerusalem for that purpose. And so that's why you and I are to be a people marked by mercy. Like, I've mentioned this before, but that quote from John MacArthur I've liked over this past year is that, we are never more like God than when we're merciful. And so in our relationships, would it be said of us that we're merciful to people? Like young people and the way you interact, you know, with people different or their needs and insecurities and hurts, are you, are you merciful? Would it be said of you? You know, what a huge indication that we know something of God's mercy. Are we merciful as a people? In our marriages, are we merciful? Well, second, we see the gravity of our sin. So in the Bible, leprosy was considered a living death. So physically, it's a slow death. The the disease attacks your your nerves. Like we said, it, it keeps spreading. It wants more, it affects more and more over a period of time, just like sin would would spread and, and get more and more a hold of us. It deforms you, cripples you, blinds you, inevitably shuts you down, and you, you, you die. Socially, it separates you from those you love. The priest sends you away from the community, ostracized. You're alive, but you're not in. Emotionally, it's, it's lonely. There's loss, it's devastating. Spiritually, you struggle to have fellowship with God. The priest looked at you and declared you unclean and sent you off, shut out of the temple. And you know your Bibles. You know at times in the Old Testament, God inflicted leprosy for outright rebellion. Miriam and Uzziah. So you wonder, like, what did I do? Imagine the temptation that comes into your mind Am I too far gone? It's a living death. And that's why in scripture, leprosy itself is a picture of sin. And there's no way to make sin look good. Sin is this complex and, and devastating moral disease like leprosy. It attacks us in all of those ways. There's that you know, story from Malcolm Muggeridge, the the English journalist. And I remember hearing this years ago, I was about 23 or 24, it stuck with me ever since. And um, so he was a journalist and was covering a story in India. And he writes this letter to his dad back in England because he wanted to tell him really a vulnerable letter, something shocking that had happened. He tells his father that in the afternoon he went down to the river by where he was staying to take his afternoon swim. But when he entered the water, he looked across the river and he saw an Indian woman also entering the river. And she took off her clothes and stood naked, her brown body, he says, catching the light of the sun. And he was just overwhelmed by like passion and lust and driven mad, he says, and 
darted with all his force into the water and just swam over to her. Even though he's a married man with children, but when he got just a few feet away, he rose out of the water. And when he did so, he nearly fainted because she was hideous. Her feet were deformed and turned inwards. Her face was marred. She grinned at him with this toothless mask, he said. And all of a sudden, he realized what what lust is. He says the next thing he knew, he he was swimming as fast as he could into the middle of the stream and trembling, and it dawned on him. It wasn't the woman who was ugly, deformed, and lecherous. Much worse was his own lustful heart. All that goes into what he had just done on an impulse and what it said of him, that predatory instinct, that wanting to use another person, that breaking a vow, he looked at it. In her, he saw his heart and his sin was laid bare and he's telling his dad about it. Third, we see the abundant grace of the gospel for sinners like you and me. So Sinclair Ferguson says, Jesus shows us how the gospel works here. So just imagine again, Jesus sends the 10 lepers to the priest. And the unnerving thing is that the 10 lepers, they had already been to the priest at some point because it was the priest that examined them by the law of God and looked at them and said, you failed the law you were unclean and had sent them out sick into their ostracized condition because the law could diagnose their problem but was powerless to heal them. But these men, at Jesus' words, go back to the priest, back to the law. They go back knowing that if they had any prayer to be healed, it wasn't gonna be the priest or the law itself because they had no power, they just condemned, it was gonna be only the power and mercy of the Lord Jesus Christ. And you see, that's what Jesus does for us in the gospel. He sends miserable sinners like you and me to the law of God. And when he sends us to the law of God, he says, you see, if by your efforts, you can cleanse yourself. And we need that rude awakening because the law can only look at you square in the eyes and say, unclean, depart from me. And we discover like these 10 lepers that it's only Jesus that can make us whole. So you see, the gospel is Jesus takes our leprosy with all its intertwined complex evil about it. He becomes our leper in our place. He becomes our sin and takes our curse. He does so at the cross. He's walking to the cross now. And in the ultimate way, the father looks at him by the law and declares his son unclean and casts him into an eternity of hell at the cross. But Jesus alone being our God man is capable of taking that judgment for us in order to render us spotless. He takes an eternal death in order to give us an eternal life at his resurrection. But then the question is, how do we receive it? 
What does our story say? What's the dynamic of the gospel? Well, you know, Dr. Luke uses three different words for heal in our passage. And when I first discovered this, it made this passage one of my favorites. He uses the word cleanse, he uses the word heal, and he uses the word save. All 10 lepers were cleansed and healed. All 10 because Jesus had mercy on them all, but only one of them was saved. All 10 had some sort of faith. When Jesus sends them to the priest, it is a test of faith. It's, will you believe I am willing and able to heal you? And all go to the priests, all have some kind of faith that he'll extend mercy to them. But the Samaritan, the foreigner, has greater insight than the others. He, he sees in Jesus somebody unique, in a unique way, God's representative that God is working in and through him. So he returns to Jesus and falls down at his feet. He alone gets the further blessing, the real blessing. Back in chapter seven, verse 22, when John the Baptist sent a message to Jesus and said, are you the Messiah or not? Jesus responds and says, I'm healing lepers. It's a sign of the Messiah. This Samaritan has that insight to say, he must be the Messiah. I'm going back to him and pay him homage. And Jesus looks at that kind of faith and says, rise, go your way. Your faith has made you well, except it's not just your faith has made you well, it's your faith has saved you. So Jesus commends the Samaritan in a way he doesn't commend the others. They were all physically healed. They all re-entered society. Their life, all of them improved. But Jesus saves the Samaritan from his deeper leprosy, his sin. The Samaritan is saving faith. We picture it here, racing back to Jesus with this heartfelt gratitude is faith. You see, the rest literally remain at a distance. They yell at a distance, they run away and get further distant. Only the Samaritan closes the distance. All would say, I'm so glad I met Jesus. He healed me of my leprosy. But only one can say, I'm so glad I had leprosy because it brought me to Jesus. You can be healed of leprosy and go into a lost eternity. The Samaritan knew what his true leprosy was and what Jesus' true healing was from his sin. He transferred me from living death to eternal life. He said to me, by means of your faith, you're saved. So we see how the gospel works. It's a stirring account for us. And so there's all kinds of questions that the count brings to you today. Things like this. Do you see your sin like this? Have you gone to the law with your sin? Have you felt the condemning unclean of the law? Are you amazed by your savior today? Have you seen him declare 
Have you seen him declared unclean for you? Have you closed the distance? Are you not just happy with his gifts, but are you happy with the giver? Do you want him? Have you fallen at his feet in faith? Are you one who's returned to him? Have you experienced grace and not just mercy? Have you heard him say to you, your faith has saved you, go in peace? And may that be the case for each of us today. Amen. Let's stand.